and it bothers me to hear I'm hungry. You know, I feed a stranger, I have, you know, and uh, it's just food is good for your soul. Piece of cake can tell a story. I am confident, just like today, there were men or women, traditionally the inference is women, who were known far and wide for their cooking skills in the past. There's no doubt in my mind. I just wish we knew their names and I wish we had their recipes so that we could honor them. To look back at how did our grandparents do it, that this is how they ate. They didn't eat when things were out of season and if they did eat it when I was out of season, it was because they had preserved it, they had canned it, they had put it up. Hey Ariel. Hello. So I'm going to paraphrase wrestling icon The Rock here to ask, from those clips, can you smell? What I'm cooking for this episode? Um, okay, I know The Rock, but I have no idea what this paraphrase is you're talking about. You've never watched wrestling? <laughs> oh, never mind. Well, what do you think we're going to talk about today? Uh, well, I guess it's fair to assume that you've been talking to some folks about food. You're absolutely right, and more specifically, food traditions in Kentucky, some of which I grew up with and still enjoy, and some that are being rediscovered. I really want to talk to you about this, and I was wondering if you have any meals or recipes that make you think of a specific person or time in your life. Sure, I guess spaghetti and meatballs always conjure up an image of my dad laboring over the stove. He had a very specific way of doing it, and he would make a huge vat that he would then put in the fridge and we would eat from for the entire week. I think everybody has those foods that conjure up things for them, and Kentuckians are no exception. But that shared experience is one of the amazing things about how people relate to food. So I want to kind of explore this idea of what all a recipe can do, how it can take you somewhere, how it can tell a story, how it can revive something that's been lost. I love talking recipes. My experience of Kentucky food has admittedly been limited, but I think learning about family recipes or regional recipes can really help tell a story, tell the history of a place. So do you have a recipe picked out to share? Oh, I do, and I am stirring up a very meaty stew for you today, Ariel. I'm Austin Carter. And I'm Ariel Avery. And from WKMS and PRX, this is Eat, Eat This, this Kentucky. Kentucky. Hey, that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> On Middle of Everywhere, big stories from the small places we call home. Okay, Austin, so what's a recipe that just screams Kentucky for you? Well, I can tell you it's not Kentucky Fried Chicken, even though it's pretty tasty. <laughs> but one that immediately comes to mind is a dish that I not only associate with Kentucky, but also with my dad, called burgoo. Okay, yeah. I've heard of it through you and some other folks here at the station, but... It wasn't actually something I was aware of before I moved to Kentucky. I'd never heard of this. Well, I most associate it with the Owensboro area because that's where my dad was from and always where I was offered it. But I spoke to a burgoo expert named Keith Cook. He manages Old Hickory Barbecue in Owensboro. Now, a lot of people don't know what burgoo is. Um, it's kind of like a vegetable soup, only we cook uh, mutton, pork, and chicken in with ours. 
Everybody kind of does there a little bit different. Uh, it originated from a Brunswick stew, which a lot of people would use squirrels or rabbits as the meat in and just throw in their vegetables in it. And it just kind of, once it got to this region, with the sheep already being here at the time, it just kind of adapted to that. So I know what mutton is, and you've told me that this is kind of a specialty there too, right? Yeah, it's barbecued sheep, for those who don't know, which was immensely popular with the early Scottish and Irish settlers of this area. And at Old Hickory, they smoked their mutton for about 20 hours with hickory smoke in these huge smokers, and they sell literal tons of it on its own, and they add a healthy amount to their burgoo, too. So the burgoo is just this kind of really meaty frontier stew. Exactly. Does that sound appetizing to you? <laughs> Well, in my household, we usually trend vegetarian, but I'm always open to a new food adventure. Well, that's good because I've got some from Old Hickory for us to try later on. But I think it's also kind of interesting that you mentioned the word frontier because Burgoo does have some similarities to a bygone time. In fact, Old Hickory barbecue itself kind of tells one story of Kentucky. John Foreman is the fourth generation owner of the restaurant. My great-great-grandfather, he was a blacksmith. And the Catholic churches, you know, they kind of started doing their picnics and stuff. And he started to cook for them. And I guess it just kind of took off from there. He did really well. And then for a while, his blacksmith shop, he had the blacksmith on one side and the pit on the other side. And he would kind of do both until you know, the blacksmith obviously faded out. And, but he used to... He would sleep there. He had a cot, and he would just stay there all night. And I think he's pretty sure he died in that cot in that room next to his pit. Now that is dedication to your craft. Well, barbecue is serious business. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't wait to try this, but I'm curious about the origins of this dish. So before the mutton came in, it was kind of this big wild game stew, right? Exactly, and Kentucky still has a huge hunting culture. My family like to hunt squirrel, and many people I know hunt deer, turkey, rabbit, quail, ducks, and anything else there's a season for. And actually, when I was a kid, we were mistakenly taught that Native Americans used Kentucky exclusively as a hunting ground and didn't actually live here. And thus, the origin of the word Kentucky in their languages meaning dark and bloody ground. Dark and bloody ground? I've never heard that before. That's so crazy. So what was the mistaken part? Well, pretty much all of it. It was kind of a pioneer myth based off of a comment from a Cherokee named Dragging Canoe that got turned into a justification for selling land in Kentucky that was supposedly not claimed by any group, a myth that made its way into history. But the idea of there being an abundance of wildlife, though, that is pretty accurate. Today we know that Native people lived in Kentucky for millennia, right? Yep. And since you brought them up and this whole episode is about food, it makes me wonder what they were eating. I wonder that too. So I think it's a good time to introduce you to someone I talked to who knows a lot about the first peoples of Kentucky. My name is Gwen Henderson. I'm the education director at the Kentucky Archaeological Survey. My research interest is the native peoples who live in the Ohio Valley, particularly in Kentucky. So when I first talked to Gwen, I asked her about some accounts I'd read from early Europeans in Virginia that said native peoples there would have a near constant stew pot going, where those who hunted or gathered food for the day could add to or eat from as needed. 
Well, that sort of reminds me of Bergen, you know. The pot's on the fire. You're putting a diversity of meats and vegetables in. You take out, you add, you take out, you add. Um, Kentucky Burgoo is all different kinds of meats. and But um, it's my understanding that um, Burgoo initially was, was mainly wild animals, you know, like deer and bear and elk and possum and raccoon and rabbit and squirrel and that kind of thing. That constant pot of stew you can eat from all day, that's like my ideal culinary scenario. <laughs> <laughs> so people in Kentucky could have been eating something like burgoo for a very long time. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but the answer to your question about what native peoples ate is a little more nuanced. It sounds like a, a rather simple question, right? What did native peoples eat? But, you know, when you unpack that, it's, it's significantly more complex. Of course, native peoples were eating animals and plants, but it depends on what time as to what animals and what plants. Oh, yeah. Okay. So at different times throughout history or in different places, people ate different things. But what would an example of that be? Well, one example that Gwen and I talked about was native nut trees in Kentucky. She said at one point in time, people here were eating a whole lot of black walnuts, but then at a certain point in time, they changed over and started eating a whole lot of hickory nuts. Interesting. Did she say why? Well, I don't think they really know, but it could have been some kind of environmental change, like more nuts of one tree were being produced or just a change of taste. But about 3,000 years ago, something pretty significant happened. Around 1,000 B.C., Native peoples throughout Kentucky started experimenting with plant domestication. And some of the best evidence is in the dry rock shelters of eastern Kentucky, but also in some of the caves. And so these folks were domesticating native plants for the seeds. So they ate the seeds, but also the leaves. But they also domesticated squash. And so they would grow these plants in gardens. And so they would be eating these plants side by side with the, with the wild ones that they continued to collect. And over the next two millennia, native peoples in Kentucky and all across the Americas would continue to domesticate plants and save seeds. And by way of exchange with other native peoples, by 900 AD, people in Kentucky had implemented a method of growing three of these important plants in harmony corn, beans, and squash. Oh, the three sisters. You got it. Okay, Ariel, so tell me what you know about the three sisters. Okay, well, I know they are three plants, corn, beans, and squash, like you said, that were grown together as if a single crop by native peoples. And the way these plants grew, they supported each other's growth. Like the corn being tall and stable served as a sort of trellis for the beans. And the squash shaded the ground around the bottom of the crop, keeping out weed overgrowth. It was a truly amazing trio. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that as a mostly vegetarian, you'd know about this relationship that Gwen called an agricultural triumvirate. <laughs> See, my vegetarianism comes with some pretty cool background, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. But do you know why the Three Sisters is so cool from a little more scientific and agricultural standpoint? Well, sort of, but I could definitely use more explanation. And it depends on a plant like corn, which is a tall, nitrogen-removing plant, beans, 
which is a vining plant, which is a nitrogen fixing plant. Which means it converts nitrogen from the air and returns it to the soil as a plant nutrient. And then squash, which grows down on the ground and covers. So when you plant corn, beans, and squash in a hill, you have this complementarity, this sustainability. It's so amazing how that all works and how Native peoples were able to discern these beneficial relationships between the plants. I know, but I guess it kind of came from that intimate knowledge of these plants that they'd gained over thousands of years of growing and experimenting with them through curiosity and necessity. You don't need a formal scientific explanation of why it works, only the time and hard-earned lessons of experience and observation. Gwen explained it pretty simply. They were organic farmers, and they, they had the fresh stuff. There wasn't any option to be not fresh unless they had dried it, you know, something salted it and dried it, that kind of thing. It's so funny to think about it in those terms. Like, today we think about things like organic farming or farm-to-table as these modern inventions, when it's really just kind of the way it's always been, or at least the way it used to be. Yeah, exactly. And Gwen brought up another great point about how much is involved with being able to rely on a certain food as a dietary staple. You know, it's not just the food eating. It's knowing how to grow the food, how to capture the food, how to process the food, how to store or preserve the food. Living that way is a totally different awareness of where your food comes from and what it takes to preserve it than most people have nowadays. So true. And Gwen also mentioned that food was just one aspect of knowing these plants and environments. Native people also knew which parts of the plant could be used for dyes or fiber or medicine so that nothing went to waste. I wish we were more concerned today with reducing or repurposing waste. Me too. But when it comes to recipes, the amazing thing is that those traditions are carried on in some way when you prepare a three sisters meal or a, a beanie chili or even burgoo. Though we may not know exactly the recipes of Kentucky's first people, Gwen said one thing is certain. There have always been people among us renowned for their cooking abilities. I just wish we knew their names and I wish we had their recipes so that we could honor them. What a great sentiment. I wish that too. But maybe we kind of honor them in growing and preparing the plants that these people worked so hard to establish and preserve for the future. I agree. And also by embracing a more intimate awareness of your food and not letting things go to waste. But every culture has those traditions that are enshrined in their recipes and those people who delight hungry mouths by profession or conviction. After a short break, we'll meet two people who have different backgrounds, but are both amazing cooks. Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. So Austin, before the break, we started talking about people who are renowned for their recipes or cooking ability. Yeah, we did. And... In this current landscape of celebrity chefs and fine dining, we know that there are a lot of people who are currently celebrated for their cooking in that way, and we'll talk to one of them soon. But I met someone who is a completely self-taught and intuitive cook 
and her food stirs up just as much pleasure as any five-star restaurant. I'm Demita Pettis, love. I'm from Hopkinsville, Kentucky. It's more likely, though, that you'll hear folks call her by a different name. I love taking care of people. And I gained that name Mama Joe because of that. <laughs> yeah, I wondered how you. I got Joe that Joe. name by helping others. And just they Mama Joe, Mama Joe. Some of them older than me. Some of them older than be my grandmother. But I'm Mama Joe with them. <laughs> and I love that, you know. I love it when they call me Mama Joe. I love her already. I know. She really has that effect on people. I've been quoting Mama Joe to my wife like every day since I met her. But as a quick aside about Hopkinsville, people usually think of Kentucky as a pretty white place, right? Well, since I live here now, I know that that's not true, but I think that's what a lot of people outside Kentucky think. So that perception is not wholly untrue in in some parts of the state. But without going into a lot of history, Hopkinsville has always had a significant and vibrant African-American community, of which Mama Joe is a part. Well, I think this is the first time you're passing up an opportunity to give us a history lesson. <laughs> I know, and it's only because I want to focus on Mama Joe here and the wisdom that she's so willing to share. You know, a lot of people holler, you know, we have nothing to eat. My logo is if you have a loaf of bread, you got a meal. So I've done so much with a piece of bread, you know. <laughs> but it's just my passion. She sounds like she truly loves cooking and loves to help people. She really does. And she started learning to cook early in her life. Her mother passed away when she was eight years old. But despite that tragedy, she was lucky to have aunties and uncles and grandparents around to guide her. And that's how she learned to cook. On Sundays, they were like, you cook this, you know, and tell someone else, you cook that. Because they knew the tasting and the difference in the food where you was good at. So if I made the best dressing, Thanksgiving, I did dressing. You know, and if one was good, my sister good on green beans, you cook the green beans, you know, and it just all the love and the flavors. We just put it together and have a good time. That shared experience of preparing food is a beautiful thing. And it may have been a bit more common in the past. I think maybe it was. And I feel like it also harkens back to some of the Native American traditions we talked about where different people in a tribe would contribute to common meals at certain times. But Mama Joe's cooking is just good Southern home cooking, as she describes. And as a Southern boy myself, who always loved to watch my grandma in the kitchen, I had to ask Mama Joe how she deals with one of my favorite Southern staples, gravy. Mm. Red-eyed gravy is a very hard gravy. Oh, boy, gravy. Wait, wait, what is red-eyed gravy? Okay, so red-eyed gravy is a gravy that's made with the grease from country ham and coffee. Okay. I had one to walk in at a place that I worked at, and they were from some part of Kentucky. I knew it was the hills, you know, and I was eavesdropping. And I heard the lady say, please, is there anybody in here know anything about red-eyed gravy? And I had some of them much older than me, 65 and 70 kind of paddling, making you no know, pies and stuff. I laughed and she was panicking. I just went to the stove, found a piece of country ham in the refrigerator. I put it in the skillet, went and got a cup of coffee, poured it on top of the skillet, put a little bacon grease, got me a tablespoon of flour, kind of sizzled around, black pepper, 
and watched it for about 30 minutes and let it boil. Got thick, pulled a little more, put a little Coca-Cola in it. When she, when I got through, she just come and hugged me like to pick me up off the floor. She said, they left you a $20 tip. She said, they said they never tasted red-eyed gravy like this in their life. And I told her, I said, baby, my granddaddy was 96 when he passed away. I watched him do that every morning. And I was like, what is he doing? And he would pour it over his biscuits. I said, why is he pouring coffee? Yo, I thought he was kind of going crazy. And the only difference was he watched a Nana make it, but then he just didn't put the thickening in it. So I went from there with granddad and washed it and added a little flour, and he started doing it himself. And I'll say, your gravy about better than mine. He said, I know, it's my recipe. <laughs> so after hearing this clip, I am adding bacon to our grocery list. <laughs> but she is such a storyteller. I know. And the day that we talked, I literally told her I could sit and listen to her tell stories all day. <laughs> then she told me another great story about an asparagus casserole. I cooked for an older uh, couple, retiree, up to when they was... Both one was 96 and one was 97 here in Hopkinsville. And she asked me to fix a asparagus casserole. And I laughed because I didn't like asparagus and I'd never heard of it. And I said, baby, I don't know anything about an asparagus casserole. She said, do not take wrong what I'm fin to say to you. I said, yes, ma'am. She was 97 years old. She said, can you read? I kind of looked at her. She said, can you write? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, read everything and follow everything that that piece of paper says. She said, you cooked it then. It's done. And it stuck with me all my life from then on. You know, I like, if you got a recipe and you follow it and do exactly what the paper say, it might turn out just right. So that's what I do. I listen well. And I will twist some things <laughs> for a new flavor or something. And if it's a boo-boo, I don't say nothing about it. But if it kind of take off, then I make sure I remember every step that I take, took to make sure that stays the same, you know, consistent with it. I try not to change something that somebody already fell in love with. I try to keep it the same. Then I write it down as a recipe, and then I continue to follow that. It's interesting you describe her as this intuitive and experimental cook because clearly here she also has this respect for following recipes. You're right. She does uh, a little bit of both. But when it comes to her recipes, she's a little tight-lipped. She even made a joke to her niece when she called asking for a recipe. She called me one Thanksgiving. She said, Auntie? I said, yes. Yeah. She said, please give me the recipe to your macaroni and cheese. That's my baby. That's my heart right there. I said, well, you know, we from the Bush family, you know, and I'm the dog and I hope we can't give away nothing. She said, I promise you, Angel, I take it to my grave with me. I said, OK. And she's still like that. But it's not all about following a recipe for Mama Joe. She likes to explore flavors and make use of what she has on hand. Once you learn that dish, you twist it and feed and cook it the way you want to. Because you have the basic, and it's excellent, and I'm tasting it. But if you want to add bacon, sometimes I add tomatoes and chicken, you know, to macaroni and cheese, you know, and twist it. So a lot of times, they thinking they're getting the same macaroni that Angel cooked for 34 years. No, they don't. I twist it sometimes. 
You know, because I get tired of it. I want a different flavor, you know. Man, I'm getting hungry. So did you get to sample any of her cooking? Oh, my God. Yes, I did. And the day that I went, she made ribs, green beans and potatoes, and cornbread. Mm. Yeah, it was delicious. And we... (laughs) And we sat socially distanced on her front porch because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But we ate lunch together and we just talked. And it may be the part that made me feel like I understood her passions the most. She loves to feed people. She loves to make them happy. And she loves to just sit down and talk about each other's lives over a warm meal. That sounds so wonderful. So did you get any recipes? Well, she shared one from her childhood that I think calls back to what we were talking about earlier about not wasting food and making the most of what you have. And it also just happens to be another meaty stew. My grandmother, Murray Howland Bell, she's deceased. I watched her. She had a heart. She had kidneys. She had two onions. She had potatoes, uh, brains. Everything from a cow. I didn't know what it was. And I kept smelling it. The aroma, oh my God. You know, it's like you cooking beef roast. It was called pluck stew. It's made of every organ of a cow. You cut it up, you fry it, you batter it a little flour, you saute it and get a crisp on it. Then you add your potatoes cut up, you add your little bit of chicken beef broth or whichever, but I like the beef broth, the bouillons. Make a little kick with it. Constantly add your warm water until it thicken, and you have a pluck stew. But that was number one in a black family coming up in the hard days of coming up. You didn't throw nothing away. So even though Mama Jo comes from a different background than the native Kentuckians we were talking about earlier, her tradition embraces the same principles as those early people. Use what you have available and make the most of it. Don't let anything go to waste. Yeah, and that is what really stuck with me the most from talking to Mama Joe, and it has affected the way I've been even cooking at home. You know, the idea that we shouldn't let things go to waste and that it's kind of a tragedy to let food just spoil is really, really important, but we live in such a culture of waste that I think we forget about that a lot of times. So it's really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. But there's another trend in recent years that also harkens back to those traditions. So Ariel, with the pandemic, you probably haven't eaten out very much lately, but I'm sure you're familiar with this trend in restaurants of being farm to table. Oh, sure. It's exploded over the last few years as people have more interest in eating local and knowing where their food comes from, especially in urban and suburban areas. Yeah, but even here in western Kentucky, we have a celebrated chef who runs a farm-to-table restaurant in Paducah. Her name is Sarah Bradley, and among her accolades, she was runner-up on season 16 of Top Chef. Yeah, I've been to her restaurant, the Freight House. It's awesome. I know, right? So Sarah's family includes both Appalachian coal miners and Jewish immigrants, both sides calling Kentucky home. And she sees some similarities in both of their cooking traditions. I think that the common thread between Jewish cooking and uh, Appalachian cooking is the ability and the 
almost pride in using ingredients that are off cuts, using ingredients that are inexpensive, using ingredients to the fullest and not wasting a single bit of them. And so I think that that gave me a lot of the outlook that I have today where we are a waste not restaurant. We, you know, we really strive to not put anything in the trash. Sarah also said that it sometimes takes new customers a little time to come around to the way they do things. We are a hyper seasonal restaurant. You know, we may only have strawberries for a month. Uh, you know, we may only have asparagus for a month. And right now, we're talking now, it's the middle of the summertime, you know, you're not going to see asparagus and strawberries on our menu because they're not in season. Um, you know, I think one thing that's hard for people to realize around here is tomatoes. Like, we only serve tomatoes when they are perfect and ripe and beautiful so we get about three months out of tomatoes and then they're gone for the rest of the year you know and people say well I want a tomato on my burger and we're like sorry it's the middle you know it's the middle of January we don't have tomatoes and and I think that that's taken some people getting used to but some people really appreciate it. I think a lot of people myself included don't often think about how amazing and sort of unnatural it is to be able to get whatever food you want any time of year at the grocery store. Yeah, it really kind of is a new phenomenon, and some people would argue that the mass-produced vegetables you get out of season lack a lot of the flavor of fresh veggies from the garden or farm stand. Right. I mean, I try not to buy tomatoes from the grocery store anymore because they just don't taste very good. Well, what's not new, though, is farm-to-table. It's really the way most people have always eaten. What is unique about restaurants like Freight House and Sarah's approach to cooking is the way she reinterprets classic Kentucky dishes like the hot brown, which has a very pragmatic origin. So the hot brown, yes, obviously the Brown Hotel. An historic hotel in Louisville, Kentucky. The hot brown was created to feed drunk people. It's two o'clock in the morning. These people are down partying in the bottom of the Brown Hotel. What can the chef come up with? And it's like bread with shaved turkey and cheese sauce all over it and bacon and tomatoes. Like this wasn't a fancy meal. The hot brown doesn't really sound all that appetizing to me, if I'm being honest. No, well, listen to how Sarah does it. Ours is served on local Kirchhoff's Big Boy bread that they bake just for us. It has like cheddar and caramelized onions in it. Um, so that's the bottom piece of the dish. We toast that on, a, on our griddles. Next, it's a sweet tea brine chicken breast that's butter poached to cook it. So we're not just doing shaved turkey. We're doing these um, really nice chicken breasts, brining them in sweet tea so we don't have to throw the sweet tea away at the end of the night. Um, po- poaching it in butter to, to heat it. So it's super tender, super juicy. Uh, covering it in Mornay, which is... Um, you know, like the classic French bechamel, but it has lots of cheese in it. Sometimes when we're trying to explain it to people, we just say, like, it's a cheese gravy. Um, heirloom tomatoes, big slice of heirloom tomatoes, and then we top it off with a double um, cooked piece of slab bacon. We crisp that up on the griddle and put it right on top. So we've recreated the whole entire dish. Um, we've just thrown a lot more attention to detail in every single aspect of it. Well, I need some napkins. My mouth is watering. (laughs) Yeah, mine too. And the hot brown is pretty famous uh, as a Kentucky staple. But Sarah also talked about some other Kentucky staples that are lesser known. But I think the ones that people forget to mention are, you know, that have some historical significance are like barbecued mutton. You know, you talk about that, then you got to look at 
burgoo. I kind of like to call it like Kentucky's gumbo. You know, it's this really meaty, dark, rich stew with lots of meats in it. Um, you know, lots of wild game. And, and that was done because it was, you know, it was a necessity. This is what they had these parts and those parts and they put them in a pot and stewed them up. Oh, I should have known that you'd bring it all back around to Burgoo somehow. I know, I'm pretty transparent, but it just kind of makes me really happy to think about people in Kentucky from the present to the distant past whose lives and cultures can seem so different, but all sharing this love for the cultivation and preparation of these similar recipes. Yeah, that shared connection can feel really gratifying especially if you've grown, harvested, and prepared the food, or even just knowing it was locally or organically grown, I think people are rediscovering how fulfilling it is to be more intimately involved with the food they eat and how to prepare it. But since you brought burgoo back up, and we've talked about this amazing food, is it finally time for me to get to try it? Okay, Ariel, I will let you try some now. Are you ready to take part in this truly Kentuckian experience? Yes, please. So let's warm up our old hickory burgoo. All right. So that felt like it took forever. <laughs> yeah, but it takes longer to actually make this stuff, right? I know, it like takes three, hours. Three, four yeah, hours, yeah, you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what do you think so far? What of the smell, the look? Well, it smells really good. Um, I'm a little bit glad that we're not doing this in front of him because this is reminding me of a dish that they used to make in my elementary school cafeteria, the smell. <laughs> oh, really? It might have been Sloppy Joe's. I can't remember. It's been a long time. <laughs> well, hopefully, uh, hopefully that's somewhat of a of a good memory. Uh, you know, I guess. Um, I mean, it smells. I know having had their barbecue sauce, like that's part of the the kind of barbecuey smell you're gonna get. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Are you ready, or we just want to try it? I'm ready to dig All in. All right, let's go. What do you think? It's very tasty. Super flavorful. Mm-hmm. And I'm really liking those like little crunchy vegetables I'm getting in there. That's really nice texture. Honestly, I think what I was expecting was something much chunkier. Like I, maybe when I hear stew, I'm thinking of like big chunky vegetables and chunky pieces of meat. But this is very um, smooth in a way. Yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. It's uh, definitely, you know, my memory of it, I was kind of uh, afraid of it as a child just because it's, you know, it's a, just a big stew and I didn't really like vegetable soup and wasn't a huge mutton fan. But, you know, as an adult, it's 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 pretty good. So do you feel like more of a Kentuckian now that you've tried burgoo? Not necessarily more of a Kentuckian, but I certainly feel like I have had this intimate experience with Kentucky culture now. I'm thinking more about how this whole thing started with your memories and your experience of Burgoo, and this whole idea of the stew pot. And it's always going and people can add and take away, but it's always there. And that kind of seems like a fitting metaphor for recipes as part of culture. Cultures renew and change recipes as time goes on. They borrow, they blend, just like that stew, just cooking away. I think that's a great way to view it. No matter how recipes and food change and evolve over time, we're all connected to this fundamental experience. 
adding, taking away, blending and sharing, on and on, forever. You can find lots more information about our show at our website, middleofeverywherepod.org. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter so you'll always be the first to know about exciting updates and new episodes. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Austin Carter, with editorial help from my co-host, Ariel Lavery. Our editor is Naomi Starobin. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Our intern is Serenity Rogers. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Middle of Everywhere Pod. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.